everyone doing? I'm still on vacation time, apparently, so the shot clock was ticking, and I'm sorry. I'm a little bit late to, to uh, the pulpit here. How's everyone doing today? We good? Good. Good to be back. Good to see you all. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick, one of the pastors here. Uh, today, we're going to be continuing our series in Ephesians. So open up your Bibles to Ephesians 4. We're going to be diving into verses 17 through 14. I want to start out by saying a massive, huge uh, thank you to all the department leaders and the elders and, and the volunteers who made these past two weeks possible. Can we put our hands together for everyone who is involved in uh, serving this body of believers? There's a lot that goes on uh, behind the scenes to make stuff happen. And a lot of people were involved. A lot of people did a lot of things. And I want to have a special shout out for Elder Seth Shook. Was anyone, anyone able to see his, or sorry, hear his first sermon? Yeah, it was amazing, right? I listened to it when I got back and I, uh, I talked to Seth and I was like, man, you just pastored us so well. I felt like it was just such a good pastoral message. We saw that um, we have such a great pastor in Seth Shook and it was amazing to see that communicated his heart uh, for the flock at the transit. And so if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to his sermon two weeks ago, make sure to uh, listen uh, to that. And again, uh, make sure you just give him a thank you. He is a lay elder, a lay pastor, and that word lay means he don't get paid for being a pastor. So on top of him working full-time uh, at the Pentagon, a very demanding job, he uh, was uh, serving us and teaching and preaching God's word. So what we're going to do uh, today is we're going to uh, let God's word have the first word. We're going to read our text, pray, and, and dive in. So verses will be on the screen. Read along with me. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to, the, due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but this, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We come before you just uh, with hearts full of gladness and gratitude that you are such a good God, that you continually invite us to come near to your heart, come near to your presence just as we are to get, uh, uh, to receive fresh mercy and and grace, and strength if we're weary, forgiveness if we're uh, in need of repentance today, and uh, compassion, Lord Jesus, where uh, condemnation has taken root in our, in our hearts. So we just thank you, God, for your, your great love for your church, your great love for your sons and daughters, and I pray, Lord, that through your word, you would shepherd us, Jesus, through your word today, Lord Jesus, that we don't we don't want to walk blindly. We don't want to uh, wander into areas of, of darkness and, and danger in our lives. Jesus, we, we want to we walk with you. We want to follow you. You've, you've made us citizens, just like Caleb was uh, reading uh, in, in the call to worship. You've called us out of the domain of darkness and into your marvelous light, into the kingdom of light, God. So teach us what it looks like to be citizens of this amazing kingdom to come while we're still here, citizens on this sin-cursed 
earth, Lord God. So would you have your way with our hearts? Come, Holy Spirit, open up our eyes to see our great need for you. Would you reveal any sin in our life that's bringing destruction, bring conviction so that we can have life in you, Lord Jesus. So do what only you can do today, God. Search our hearts, sanctify us, Lord God. Help us to see you rightly and respond accordingly today. Respond accordingly today. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. All right, does anyone here remember, uh, <laughs> some of you might not be old enough, so sorry, Gen Zers, but the, day, uh, the days before we had cell phones, some, some of you, yeah, some of you are like, oh, yeah, it's going to be a good sermon. Preach, Nick. Okay, so when I was in high school and college, or well, around college, uh, senior year, we got cell phones, but it was a flip phone. It's a phone that actually flipped, not like the cool new flip phones, but like the not cool just flip phones. You had a T9 text, all that stuff. But what I'm getting at is if you ever wanted to drive somewhere, say you're in high school, you're hanging out with your friends, and your friend's like, hey, there's a Waffle House in this town an hour away. I know how to get there. The only way you arrive safely at that destination is by following that dude, right? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Like, do you remember the days you actually had to follow people in cars to get where you wanted to go? And listen, in high school, man, in college, it was the blind leading the blind, all right? Like, I can't even tell you how many times, you know, I had almost got T-boned running a red light because, you know, the guy I'm following is, is, is going 50 miles an hour. And, then, and you're trusting him. He said he knows the way to go. And we're all, there's this convoy of, you know, college students following him. And all of a sudden he starts popping a U-turn. And you're like, oh, no, this guy's lost. And then, and then it always ends up in some random parking lot where you guys rally. And you're like, all right, how do we get back home, right? Um, and so the reason I, I share that is, is the Apostle Paul here today clearly articulates the fact that um, we as followers of Jesus aren't to follow the ways of this world. We're not to walk as the Gentiles walk because they don't know God. They don't know the heart of God, the love of God. And, and, and uh, you know, he talks about words of, of, of ignorance and, and darkened in their understanding. He's not dogging on uh, non-Christians' IQ or intelligence. There's, there's uh, extremely intelligent people who don't know Jesus. The scriptures say that the fool says in his heart that there is no God, that on paper you can have a triple doctorate and be really smart in the things of the world but entirely miss the, employ- the, the, the entire point of your existence. It's foolishness. If we, if we don't know who God is, if God hasn't born, birthed new life in us to see God rightly, then we miss the entire point of our existence, of who God is, who we are, our great need of, of the forgiveness Jesus has, has purchased for us on the cross and being restored back to a right relationship with God. That's where we find true life and true meaning. And so the exhortation in our text today is, is don't walk as the Gentiles walk. And when Paul uses that word Gentile, he's, he's using that um, uh, as, a, as a broad term to just describe the, the, the non-Christian world and culture. And so what we see here, what Paul is telling us in our text today, that it is possible as a follower of Jesus to be following the ways of Ephesus and not the ways of Jesus. It's possible as a follower of Jesus to be getting our character and our conduct from the culture and not from Christ. It's possible for the the church, the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ to look and walk and talk more like Ephesus than like Jesus. Because if this command is given, well, there's, there's a reason this command is given, that the believers that Paul led to Jesus in Ephesus, he's writing five or six years later back to them, and he's saying, listen, be careful. You still got an old self, and you're still in Ephesus, and be careful how you walk. 
be careful how you walk. And that's our series theme, is between two worlds, right? Ephesians, between two worlds. And this is the, the main theme of uh, uh, our sermon series. And what we're looking at is how do we live for Jesus while we're still living and breathing in, in pagan Ephesus? How can we, um, as we cried out that God is holy and holy and holy, and, and the command in scripture is the Lord says to his people, be set apart, be sanctified, be consecrated, be holy as I am holy. How do we live for Jesus while still being sent into Ephesus to love them? Quick disclaimer, when I talk about the culture, the Christian's mindset to the people in the culture who don't know Jesus is love, is love. We love those outside the church. We serve them. We pray for them. Even if they persecute us, even if they slander us, even if they cancel us, even if they hate us, how we respond as followers of Jesus who no longer have an option to disobey our Savior's command to pray for those who persecute you, we, that's our hard posture towards the, the hostile culture, towards the people. Now, when I, so just disclaimer, when I'm talking about Gentile not walking in the ways of the Gentiles, I'm talking about the, the ethic, the mindset, what they're pursuing, not talking about loving our neighbor and serving them. If we were to put, um, <laughs> over vacation, we had to do some dinners. And so actually, I, I did a lot of cooking and, and chopping vegetables and making salads on vacation. So that was actually relaxing. I was like, I should do this more often, okay? And so um, imagine you have a mixing bowl. You're baking, or, or in my fam family, you're making a big salad, okay? So, and the only two ingredients are the non-Christian culture and the redeemed church. And yet you're trying to mix them together to see which one takes over the other. And, and this is what, I'm, what we're going to be talking about today, is when the non-Christian culture interacts and, and meets the church, guess which one ought to change? The non-Christian culture, not the church. We shouldn't be adopting the mindset, the attitudes, and the actions of the culture that's alienated from God and hostile towards God. Right, And so when those two roads meet, and this is what we see is Jesus loved the tax collector and the prostitute and the sinner. But when the sinner met Jesus, Jesus didn't go away changed. The sinner went away changed. Right, And so um, the, the, the lie that we can be believing in this cultural moment is that in order for us to truly love our neighbor, we have to change what we think and, and act and what we, what we say. And, and that's not necessarily true if you know what I'm saying. That, that love is actually speaking the truth and not speaking lies to our neighbors. So that's what we're going to be uh, uh, looking at is in our lives when, when my following of Jesus, my, my walking in the ways of Jesus intersects with the, the, where the rest of the culture is walking, who's going to change who and who's going to influence the other. And the three points of my sermon today are this, and we're going to talk about the first point is this, is that in order for us to influence our culture for Christ, uh, one of the things that we're going to be invited to, the first point of my talk is this, is we need to have a right understanding of the non-Christian culture. We need to have a, an appropriate, biblically informed view of the non-Christian world that we live in. Paul doesn't hold back his language when he talks about the culture of Ephesus. It's downright offensive in our day and age. What, with the verses I just read to you, what he's saying about first century Ephesus. Look at how he describes people separated from God. He said they're darkened and in their understanding and the futility of their minds. They're alienated from God. They, they don't know the one true living God. Sin has brought separation from the life of God. Remember, we've talked about how sin separates us from our source of life, who is God, and the, our biggest need is to be reconciled back to our source of life. 
Um, their hearts are hardened and callous is what the Apostle Paul says to the, 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 about the, the non-Christian uh, world in Ephesus in the first century. And he says they're greedy to practice. They're greedy to practice sinful desires that are antithetical to following Jesus. And so one of the things that we see here that sticks out is this, is that animosity towards God or, 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 or doubting God's existence for the non-Christian isn't just an intellectual thing. It's not, oh, I just have these, these big issues, um, um, you know, with, with uh, uh, like, it's just superstition, God doesn't exist, all that stuff. No, 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 what we see, what scriptures clearly show is that actually not believing in God, not having faith in God starts with our heart and then it recruits our mind. And so if we were to reverse the order of what Paul is saying, we would see this order is this, is that uh, those who are opposed to belief in God and giving their lives back to their creator who created them uh, for himself, uh, the non-Christian world wants to make their will and wishes for their life their God. They're greedy to practice sensual desires. That could look like just, hey, I want to be left alone and, and fulfill the American dream, or I have some illicit desires that I want to pursue, and, and, and so that's what my heart wants. And so therefore, I'm going to harden my heart like concrete, if you ever worked with concrete before, right, once that concrete gets hardened, there is no outside source that can tell that thing where to go and, and, and shape it, right? That's why it's so dangerous for us to have a hardened heart. We need our hearts softened so that God can conform us into the image of Jesus. But unrepentant sin in our lives gets us set in our ways like concrete where we're trying to assert our will because we have a desire for sin, and so we harden our hearts, and then we become darkened in our, in our understanding and alienated from God. And so basically, a simpler way of saying that is the mind will justify what the heart is chosen. And what Paul is articulating about the non-Christian world is that they are greedy to practice their own desires. And that desire could be something just as like, you know, pursuing the American dream and materialism and greed and, and financial success devoid of God or it could be very illicit and some of the big sins, right? It could be either, either or. But the mind will justify what the heart has chosen, meaning this, the heart first chooses that I will be the Lord of my life and I will fulfill all my life's longings and wishes and nobody will tell me otherwise, especially not the God that you're, you know, saying exists. And then your mind will work overtime to justify your lifestyle, to justify that reasoning. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Watch this. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We, uh, as in, in our BC days, before Christ days, or, or in our days where we walked away from Christ, where it was, we have these desires. I need to make sure that God remains dead so that there's, there's no objective moral standard. And I can go live my life guilt-free, suppressing the truth through unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to every human being. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that you and I are beautifully and wonderfully made because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that man is without excuse knowing that God exists. And if God exists, he's creator. And the only reason we're here is because he first spoke us into existence to know him and to love him and serve him. And uh, nature, God has revealed himself in nature. And so I have a couple quotes up here by uh, a non-Christian scientist about this idea of the mind will justify what the heart is chosen. So Caleb, if you can fire up that first one here. This is Julian Huxley, a very uh, well-known, I believe he's a geneticist. Um, and this is what he says. The reason we accepted Darwinism, even without proof, is because we didn't want God to interfere with our sexual mores. 
And so he's saying that we harden our heart to any uh, 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 valid arguments for made from science for intelligent design being behind what we see in the universe. Why? Because we wanted to be greedy to practice. Or there it is. And this is a non- and there's another one. This is uh, Richard Lewontin, another famous scientist. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories. Unsubstantiated just-so stories. Evolution can talk about maybe the uh, uh, survival of the fittest. It doesn't say anything about the arrival of the fittest. And to be a non-Christian is to believe that nothing created everything, that chaos produced order. That's what you have to believe, and that's what he's talking about here in this quote, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materials. And basically what these quotes are saying is, we as scientists, and I'm not knocking, I, I, love, I, I love antibiotics and technology and the scientific, I'm not knocking science, science, I'm just illustrating the point that these scientists are honest with the fact that if evidence even showed up, they had a prior commitment to materialism because they were predetermined that they did not want God to exist. And so they had confirmation bias. And we as the church get accused of confirmation bias. Everybody's biased. And it's an issue of your heart, and then, you, and then it recruits your mind. And so all that to say, this is what I'm getting at, uh, quoting all this, is when Paul is talking about um, the, the pagan culture that we live in, what he is loudly and clearly saying is, hey, uh, followers of Jesus, we need to wake up and smell the roses. The non-Christian culture we live in is not neutral territory for us. That there is a mighty river that is flowing uh, against the current of following Jesus in our world. And in this cultural moment that we live in, unless your head has been buried in the sand, you are, we're beginning to see that we're not just living in a post-Christian world, but also an anti-Christian world. A world that's hostile to the gospel. A world where it's seen as Christian not being weird, but as being wicked to be a follower of Jesus now. So what that means is that we as Christians, the one of the greatest needs is we have to walk in discernment with the exposure that we allow of the church's culture and, 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 and ethics to influence our lives. And so I was at the beach this week and, um, you know, your boy didn't spend too much time in the sun leading up to the beach. But I was going to be for seven days just basking in, in the glory of God's son with a bald head. Okay? So, so there's some... some um, some different views of thought in regards to sun exposure. One view of thought could be the, maybe the, the crazy fundamentalist Christian camp of like the sun that rises, any exposure whatsoever is dangerous. So we're going to bubble wrap all of us. We're going to stay in hiding, never see the sun, you know, like all that stuff. We're just going to get a doomsday bunker 50 feet in the ground and just ride this thing to glory as the, hell, as the world goes to hell in a handbasket, Right? That could be, I'm just going to keep away from the sun because the sun is all bad. And we know that with the culture, there's great things in the culture, right? Food we can enjoy, uh, uh, media we can, like, there's, there's great things in, in the culture. Like, all truth is God's truth. It's a gift of God's common grace to us. So one view would be, like, let's just totally keep our distance and flee from the culture, and any exposure is evil. But then the flip side of that, we call that the crazy Christian camp, would be way over here, would be that any and all exposure to the sun is completely harmless. Um, you're, I, I can, I... I, on, on day one of being at the beach and not being in the beach, all, not being in the summer all, all year, not, not being exposed to the sun, I don't need to put on sunscreen. Uh, I don't need to put a hat on my bald head. And I can be out there for 14 hours a day, not drink water, see if I get heat stroke, see how many blisters I get on my head. Like, that's a big deal, right? And what I would say over here is what we do, that side over there is seeking selfishly to avoid persecution. It's just self-preservation is all that is. But I call this camp over here cool, trendy Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, oh, 
we're going to win the culture to Christ by looking like the culture and not looking like Jesus. And I, I've, been in, I've been following Jesus for a long time, been in ministry. I have never seen a single person share their testimony and say, yo, so I met these Christians. They were so cool. And so then I gave my life to Jesus. That's not how that thing works, right? I'm not saying we have to be weird and, and dress weird or speak weird. I'm not saying that at all, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that there's this desire, and it's sinful and it's selfish, of self-preservation. To avoid persecution. Uh, not exalt Christ, not honor Christ. I'm just going to fit in. And we're going to look and, and we're going to watch everything that Ephesus is watching. We're going we're to pursue everything that Ephesus is pursuing. We're going to be ninja Christian followers of Jesus. And that's how we're going to win the world to Jesus. Give me a break. Ain't nobody, I mean, maybe that's your testament. Prove me wrong. But I've never met a single person that was like, wow, Christians are so cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my life to Jesus. And in the middle, what we have in regards to exposure is just discernment. Right? It's a healthy understanding that we need to, by the word of God and, and by the spirit of God and the community of believers, have a healthy understanding of when too much exposure of the culture is actually uh, uh, turning our hearts away from Christ. Turning our hearts to old sinful patterns that Jesus died to set us free from. And the bottom line is this, if we, you and I are commanded to not live like the Kardashians, why in the world would the church be keeping up with the Kardashians? Someone say preach, come on. We got no business, right? Like they're going completely the opposite direction of everything that Jesus Christ is calling us to do. Why in the world, if we're commanded not to, to fall, look like and talk like and walk like the Kardashians, why in the world would the church just be buttoned like, yeah, let's keep up the Kardashians. This is great. This is fun. No, it's not. It's doling your affections for Christ, and it's, and it's leading you down. It, it's, it's not. Beckett Cook, um, he, uh, in 2009 at a coffee shop in, in L.A., he was in Hollywood. He was in the LGBTQ community, and he had Christians uh, share the gospel with him and invite him to church. And he came to church that Sunday, had this powerful encounter with God, and, and is now is following Jesus and was saved out of the LGBTQ li uh, lifestyle. And I was listening to a podcast uh, recently, Remnant Radio, interviewed Beckett Cook, and you get to hear his testimony. You can... You can uh, Listen to that. It was really helpful. And one of the things that he shares, someone who worked in Hollywood for a long time, even as a Christian, until they found out that he was a Christian, now he got blacklisted, doesn't, can't work there anymore, and um, especially coming out of uh, the community that he was in. And he says this. He says, if you spend an hour watching Netflix, you're signing up to be lied to for an hour. And if you spend an hour watching Netflix, you need at least another hour in the word of God to reprogram your mind for truth. You're just sitting there saying, lie to me, world. Lie to me about what's most important. Lie to me about my posture towards God. Lie to me about what I should be pursuing in my life. If we're watching that, and not all, not all, there's certain things that are like, obviously don't watch that. I might talk about that later in my talk. But, but we're, being, we're signing up to be lied to. We need discernment in this day and age. James 1.27 says this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Say hallelujah, amen. Like, let's be about loving God and advancing his kingdom. But then we, we never make it to this part, to keep oneself unstained from the world. To keep oneself unstained from the world. So I'm running out of time here. I'm going to segue to our next point. But this is my question before we move on. Where in your life are you allowing the non-Christian world to disciple you? What podcasts? What movies? What shows? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you chasing after? Where are you not allowing the, the, the word of God, uh, Jesus Christ, your Savior, to shepherd you? Where are you signing up for the culture to shepherd your heart and to disciple you? We are commanded explicitly. This comes directly from our text. Do not walk 
in the direction of the Gentiles, that they have a direction they're going to, and that's alienation, further alienation from God, and the culture is, 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 wants to take us with, the church wants to take us with, uh, 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 take us with them where they're going. Where in our lives are we allowing the culture to disciple us in their morals, in their ethics, and not the ethics of Christ? Secondly, in order for us to not uh, uh, walk in the ways of the Gentiles, we need to have a healthy understanding in regards to discernment of the non-Christian world, but we also need to keep our old selves in the grave. Uh, we need to keep our old selves in the grave. Verse 22 of our text says this, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put off your old self. So, um, in the context of our text, there were, in the church at Ephesus, go read Acts 19. In the church at Ephesus, there were Ephesian believers who were saved out of uh, witchcraft, uh, occultism, like worshiping of demons, worshiping of Artemis. Uh, they, they burned $6 million, $6 million collectively worth of occult and, and witchcraft books and, and, and objects. Um, they were saved out of, out of sexual immorality and, and, and all sorts of stuff. And Paul is saying, listen... You've been saved out of that, but yet you're still going to go past the temple of Artemis where you used to worship every single day. And there is an old lifestyle that you've been saved from that Jesus Christ has nailed to the cross. That's the, that's the BC days. You guys know what I'm talking about when we say BC days? That, that we have with our testimonies. We have, this was me before Christ. This was my old way of thinking, my old self, my old way of thinking, and my old way of living, that I thought differently and I act differently about my life and the things of this world. Now that Christ has saved me, he's cleansed me, he's made me a new creation, and he's given me a new lifestyle, he's given me a new mind and a new lifestyle and a new mission and a new destination, now I get to, I get to think and, and, and act differently while in Ephesus. Put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of Life. Romans 6, 6 says this, we know that our old self with, was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so what we see in our text is that our old self is dead. Our old self was crucified with Jesus, right? Like our old lifestyle that we got maybe saved out of is dead and buried. Jesus took that from us, took it to the cross, and then just clothed us in a, as a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Forgiveness of sins, filling with the Spirit of God, a completely new ethic, a completely new kingdom to pledge allegiance to, a completely new future destination in our lives. And although he's done that, what we see is that old self still has deceitful desires. That that old self, although it's in the grave, still shouts out to us from the grave, come back to me and join me in the grave. I have some desires that I long to fulfill. So even though that old self is in us, that's not our old self. We don't identify with our sin. We don't say, I am blank. I am this. I am that. That's old self. That's been nailed to the cross. That guy's dead and buried. I'm a new creation. I'm, I'm a child of God. I'm no longer a slave. Just like we sang about this morning. I'm no longer a slave to fear, but just uh, put any, oh man, I spilled coffee on that. My goodness. All right. Uh, I'm no longer a slave to fear, but fill that, fill that in the blanks of whatever that sinful the, your old self, like that, like whenever you get that shopping cart, has the one wheel that always turns to the right. What is that for you in your life that always pulls to the right? That's your old self, right? Maybe it's you just li- simply going by TJ Maxx and you used to go, in your old self, you used to go to TJ Maxx and buy like thousands of dollars worth of stuff and God has saved you out of materialism, right? And greed, right? It could be something as simple as that. But where's that, that heart bent, right? That's that old self calling out from the grave saying, come and join me in the grave. 
And what we learn here is say, no, you put that thing to death. And, and you might be asking, okay, well, well um, how does the culture and our old self interact? So we have this old self, old lifestyle with these deceitful desires. Deceitful desires meaning this, that they promise life and they bring death. They promise life, but they bring death. The, the mantra, the, the refrain of our, of our culture, non-Christian culture is this. Any desire you have internally is good and you should fulfill it. And anyone who tells you otherwise is doing an act of violence against you. Right? So it begs the question, what desire? Right? Is there an objective moral standard that tells me when I have conflicting desires in my heart, which one is the right one to do? Like at the, at the beach trip, I want to be healthy. Uh, I, 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 want, I want to be physically fit. That's a desire, internal desire I have. And my goodness, if we didn't get peanut butter chocolate cheesecake at the beach too for dessert, which desire should I satisfy? I have two. How do I choose? Right? Oh, oh, oh I, want, I want to be a, a generous, radically generous follower of Jesus with my finances. But man, there's this freshly roasted coffee company that is offering this deal on bougie coffee. And, and I just want to, cons- like, which desire? Right? And so it is the height of foolishness. The heart is deceitful above all else. It is the height of fullness in this cultural moment to say that just because you have an internal desire that that is good and it should go unchecked. That's the most dangerous vice. Imagine giving that to my, my kids. Hey, you're five. Uh, you, like, you like trying to do a backflip off of that chair. Who am I to tell you otherwise? Right? No. Right? So there has to be some objective standard that helps us decide in what situations which desire is the right desire. Right? Old self versus new self. And what the culture does, how the, how the way the old self, who's dead and buried, and we're new creations, but he's still calling out to us from the grave. And the culture, the culture prepares a feast before us for our old self. The culture prepares a feast for our old self, to call our old self. So there's a lot of things that this non-Christian culture prepares a mighty banquet and feast for. And the Stanley Cup playoffs were, I don't watch TV, uh, but the Stanley Cup was happening at the beach and we got the channel. So all of a sudden I'm watching all these commercials. And I said, man, I need a Cadillac. Man, I need a, you know, I need this new Mercedes. I need, I need, oh, I need to start gambling on sports. I didn't know that was as trending as it was. I can't even believe it. And then you have this warning after all these gambling apps. My gosh, hey, if you need help, yeah, you know how, you better, you better, you better pad that stuff because you're about to have millions of customers for gambling recovery. It's crazy what our world is pursuing. And so the, the culture just says this, this, this never-ending buffet, this banquet to call non-Christians, to call Christians, to call their old self out of the grave. Say, come on, feast, feast. Don't you miss it? Don't you miss your old lifestyle? Don't you miss your old sin? Isn't God just a fun buster? God doesn't have uh, your good. This is good. My, my youth pastor growing up, would, we'd call that maggot-filled hot dogs. <laughs> yeah. Well, one, you have to agree with him that hot dogs are actually good and you desire to eat them. But that would be a deceitful desire is that you bite into it. You, you fall for the lies of it, and it's, it's filled with maggots, right? And I, I still remember that, and now you will um, growing up. So, so where in your life, the question is the same, and then, and then we'll transition here. Where in, you, where in your life do you see, as I've been speaking, the Holy Spirit has revealed to you, that the, cult, the culture and, and you allowing the culture to, to speak into your life is, is wooing and, 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 and calling your dead self out of the grave to come and feast on things that are completely opposed to the kingdom of God. Where in your life are you allowing that to happen? Hebrews 12, 1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In our lives, we often say, oh, 
God, I want more of you. Oh, God, help me run after you. I want zeal. I want to just follow you. I want to pursue you, right? That's a good prayer to pray. But begs the question, well, how do we chase after God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? The very thing we were created to do. It's not legalism. It's the very reason you exist is to love the Lord your God. And love looks like something with all your heart, your soul, mind, and strength. And so I was at the beach, obviously, this week, and I went to the beach clearly for sermon illustrations. And... Um, you know as well as I do, if you've been to the beach and you have kids, like, you, you, you have a small, like, like uh, storage unit on your back that you're carrying to the beach. you got plastic toys, boogie board, umbrella, cooler. You're walking in flip-flops on, on sand hot as lava. And then you got to go over these stairs that are breaking because they're rotting from the wood. Rot- and it's just like, it's like a ninja warrior obstacle course to get to the beach. And um, it's like we have all of these things in our life that we know <laughs> that we're, our sinful self is just feasting on. And we're crying out, we're saying, oh, God, I want to chase after you. I feel apathetic. I feel lukewarm. God, oh, help me. And Jesus is like, so do you want to, do you want to lay any of that down? Because if, if you just lay that down and give that to me and turn from that, you'll actually be able to follow me way faster. And so what is that for us today? What are those things that Jesus is going to invite us to lay? When we hear the preaching of, of the word of God, we, we want the scriptures and the spirit to search us and to show us it's going to be different for everyone. Where are we quenching the spirit in our lives? And more of Jesus only comes from less of Ephesus in our lives. You want more of Jesus? It comes from putting off the old self um, and less of putting off the old self so that we can get the new self. And so then the question remains, why is this such a big deal to God? I mean, come on, God. Why do you care what I watch? Why do you care if we, if we you know, like chase after things of the world. Why is that such a big deal? I'm forgiven. My status with you is never going to change. Why is this such a big deal? And the simple, simple response is because of the magnitude of God's love for us. It's everything we've been talking about in Ephesians, that we don't belong to Ephesus anymore. We don't belong to this world anymore. We belong to Jesus, not Ephesus. And so God wants our hearts. God wants our affection. God wants our uh, attention, our allegiance. And love is always exclusive. If you're married or have been to a wedding, when someone stands in front of their spouse-to-be and says, I do, they are simultaneously saying, I don't, to everybody else that exists on the planet Earth to be in this covenant of relationship with God. And so when you, when God says, you will be my people, when you will be my child, and you say, you will be my God, you're simultaneously renouncing all other gods that you bow down to and worship. So there's one God. It's exclusive. Love, by definition, is exclusive. And this is how scripture uses the language of our posture towards worldliness in the church. James 4, 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Don't just go chase your passions. We need the Holy Spirit to help us crucify our flesh. You desire and don't have, so you murder each other. You covet and cannot t- obtain, so you fight and quarrel and cancel each other. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You're asking the one true living God to give you provision so you can go bow down and worship mammon and worship other gods. God said, I'm not going to answer that prayer. You're just coming to me so that I can give you what you want to worship your other gods. You adulterous people. Do you know the friendship with the world? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Our God is jealous for our affection and for our hearts. Let me explain it this way. So, um, you know, if you're married, like you, you, you had a, 
you're now entered into a new covenantal relationship. You have a, a new life, and you've left old uh, uh, boyfriends and girlfriends behind, right? So imagine I have this amazing date for like, you know, our 12-year anniversary for Jen and I. We're going to go hiking. I got a picnic packed. I got, uh, I brought my acoustic guitar. I'm going to sing her a love song I wrote, you know, all this stuff. And, and I'm like, hey, babe, we're going to go. And she goes, hey, so I recently reconnected with my old boyfriend, Chuck, before, I, this is completely hypothetical uh, statement. I reconnected with my old boyfriend, Chuck, for my old lifestyle. Um, I was hoping he could come with us on this day. What, what are your thoughts about that? Like, what do you think about that? And, and right now, as I'm sharing that, I'm getting, I'm getting angry about Chuck. I don't even know Chuck. Chuck doesn't even exist, and I don't like him, right? Why, why do I hate this guy, Chuck? Why do I want to bring him to the top of the mountain so I can chuck Chuck off of the mountain? Why do I want to do that? Because I love my wife. If I didn't love her, if I didn't desire her allegiance and, and a relationship with her, it wouldn't matter. Yeah, bring whoever you want. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. Go do what you want. I don't want to spend time with you. Yeah, go hang out with that guy. No, no, no. Jesus loved you so much he died to set you free from your old self and give you new self. That's the magnitude of God's love. The reason it's such a big deal, it's God the Father's affection for us and his protection for his kids. Affection and protection. That The world is not neutral territory. We can, uh, we can wander into places that we as children of God have no business going. And so God is a good God. He's given us a much better way to live. And this is where we're going to close. He's given us a much better way to live. And this is, we're not just commanded in scripture to put off the old self. God isn't just saying, you all are a bunch of sinners. Stop doing all that bad stuff, that old stuff. No, no, no. We're invited to a brand new lifestyle of joy and of life and of love. Not an easy way, a hard way, but a satisfying way. And this is what it says. If we're to figure out how do we remain unstained from the world and yet love the Lord, we need to not just understand how the culture works and, and put off the old self. We need to clothe ourselves in the new self. That's our third point. We need to clothe ourselves in the new self. Verses 20 through 23 says this. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And watch this, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In true righteousness and holiness. We see this beautiful exchange that we don't add the new self onto the old self, we replace it, we exchange it. If you've ever gotten, like gone shopping and got yourself a bunch of new clothes, um, you know that you have limited space in your closet or your dresser to fill those. So you actually have to take these old, nasty, out-of-date clothes uh, out, right, and, and, and maybe throw those out or give them away to somebody else so that the, you can make space for the new. And what we see is, you might be saying, well, what does it look like to clothe ourselves in the new self. In the Greek, that word literally means, in the New Testament, it means to like put on a garment, to clothe ourselves in something new. And it's basically this. Jesus has given us a new mindset, a new way to think about God, a new way to think about our finances, a new way to think about other people in the church and outside the church, a new way to, to, to live our lives. So he's given us a new heart and, and, and new actions, a new mission. And so we get to decide every day in every situation if we're going to think and act as our old selves in this situation or our new redeemed selves. We get to replace old thinking and living with new thinking 
and living. And I'm not going to spend too much time talking about old self versus new self because this is what the, the rest of what we're going to be talking about in Ephesians is all about. And so next week, I'm giving you a preview of what we're going to be looking at, okay? So here, we see this pattern of what does it mean? If we were to ask, what does it mean to put off the old self and put on the new? Well, context is the king of understanding scripture. So oftentimes, if we have a question as we're reading the Bible, just keep reading and you'll get the answer. Here's what it looks like to put off the old and put on the new. Ephesians 4.25, therefore, having put away falsehood, that belongs to your old self lying deceitfulness it doesn't stop there let each of you now speak the truth with his neighbor right clothe yourself in the new self ephesians 4 28 let the thief no longer steal that was the old self that's how you acted before you knew who god was the father who loves to provide but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands why so that he may have something to share with anyone in need you as a follower of jesus live to be a blessing to the nation so live your life in a way that's a blessing rather than stealing from people ephesians 4 29 let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth you used to talk your old self used to have a lingo. Your new self used to cut people down. Your new self used to love to gossip and to slander. Your, that, I mean, sorry, your old self used to gossip and slander, but that's not who you are anymore. And now, now you have a, a tongue and a heart that's been redeemed and cleansed and sanctified. So now with the tongue that you used to curse God and curse men, now you get to bless God and bless mankind. And so use that. So put off the old and put on the new and use this to advance the kingdom of love. Speak blessing over kids. Speak encouragement to those who need encouragement. An application before we, we conclude, um, Jen and I, um, uh, uh, on Monday when we got back from our trip, got some, some bad health news, okay? But it wasn't like bad news. There's nothing to like freak out about. It just potentially, time is only going to tell if it could be, it could be absolutely nothing or it could be kind of something that's kind of serious. We don't know. But when Jen went to the doctor on, 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 uh, on Monday, kind of gut punched us. We're like, oh man, this could be um, kind of a big deal. And it kind of, kind of rocked us. Right, and I was back in the office that day and, and getting ready for the sermon, and we were praying about it and, and talking and processing it, and I, I looked at Jen, and I said, you know what? I think this is an opportunity from God. No matter what, this, this, this potential trial is an opportunity for God of, of asking this question. Jen, what would it look like for us in this situation if we didn't have God in our lives? How would our old selves respond in this situation to this potential news? How would we act if we had, didn't have God and didn't have hope in this world? We'd be bound in fear and anxiety. But, but, but more than that, how now do we get to act in this moment in our new self? That we have a God who's radically for us. A God who has promised good. A God who's with us. A God who's given us precious promises in his word. We're not alone. God is actively at work in our life. What would it look like for us to clothe ourselves, to put off the old self of fear and anxiety, and to clothe ourselves, not in a naive way, but in a way that trusts God in this? God, you're worthy of our trust. So in every trial we face, in every temptation we face, there's an exchange that you and I uh, have. And we can either continue to operate like our old selves and our old thinking and way of living, or we can clothe ourselves in the new lifestyle that Jesus has called us to. And so with every situation, you have the old self calling out to the grave to come and join that person in the grave, or you have Jesus standing before you with a beautiful wardrobe and saying, come with me. I want to clothe you with peace where there's anxiety. I want to clothe you in comfort where there's affliction. I want to clothe you in faith where there is fear. Come with me. In every situation, Jesus is standing before us with a brand new wardrobe. Where there's condemnation, come to me. I'll give you fresh forgiveness of your sins. And so I'll conclude with this. Van, you can come on up. Um, John 21. John 21. We're going to close with this. 
Um, this is the, the famous story where uh, we're in the in-between of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. It's that 40-day window where the resurrected Christ is appearing to his disciples. And what we're going to be looking at to close our time is the, the third instance where Jesus appeared to his disciples. And if you remember the story, Peter looks at six other disciples and he says, hey, we're going to go fishing. And now if you remember Peter's conversion story in Luke 5, uh, he was called out of fishing, out of that old lifestyle to follow Jesus. Jesus said, I will make you a fisher of men. And if you know uh, Peter, the apostle Peter's story, you know that he denied Jesus three times. He uh, abandoned uh, Christ at Christ's greatest moment of need from his disciples. He abandoned, but not only did he abandon Christ, but he outright uh, pronounced a curse over himself saying, I don't know this man and I've never been associated with him. And so Peter in this moment for sure is probably wrestling with shame and condemnation that he let his old self of, of fear win and now he's disqualified from being a follower of Jesus. He's disqualified from being a key leader in the church of Jesus Christ. So what does Peter do? He identifies himself not with his new self who Jesus Christ spoke over him that you're the, the rock and I will build this church but he's now potentially uh, going back to his former ways of life. And then there's this beautiful moment where they're fishing, and they fished all night. And this is almost identical to Luke 5, John 21. They fished all night, and then Jesus is on the shore, and he says, put out your uh, nets for a cast one more time on this side of the boat. They do it. They get a ton of fish. The disciples realize, holy moly, that's the resurrected Jesus. And then Peter uh, does a full, like, you know, Michael Phelps uh, a swim, full sprint swim to the shoreline where Jesus has a fire ready. And we have, this is where we see Jesus on the shore with this famous interaction with the Apostle Peter, who had, uh, uh, within a matter of, we don't know how far this was from the crucifixion, but a couple weeks, Peter is still in regret and in shame. He's returned to his old lifestyle fishing, and this is what Jesus says to Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus, watch this, calls him out of his old self, calls him out of the attire of a fisherman and has a shepherd's staff in his hand and a shepherd cloak. And he clothes Peter, invites him into, uh, to put on his new self. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs. When Jesus is looking at Peter and says, do you love me more than these? There's some, deba some debate uh, 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 with New Testament scholars on what is Jesus referring to? Is he talking about the disciples? But I think the context, one of the, one of the, the main thrusts of what that, in, what that means interpretatively is that Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me more than the comfort and security you get from your former lifestyle fishing? I've already called you and commissioned you. You think you've blown it. And I have to recommission and recall you to feed my sheep like I've, like I've called you to do that. But you've returned there. Do you love me more than you love your old self? And if so, will you clothe yourself in the new self and follow me? And it, this happens three times. And Peter says again and again and again, Lord, you know I love you. So the reason I share that is I want to ask before we take communion to prepare our hearts. And I feel like the Lord, without a doubt, Jesus can say this to Peter because there is no doubt in that moment that Jesus loves Peter. He's got the scars on his hand, in his side and on his feet, sitting with Peter in resurrected glory uh, to show, I love you, Peter. Now, the only question I have is not just do you love me, but do you love me more than the things that are holding you back from you giving me your whole heart? And so what is that for us today? Right, Not in a way that's condemning, but a way that is bringing us conviction and so that we get less of Ephesus and more of Jesus in our lives. So let's bow our heads in prayer before we take communion. And let me pray for us. 
Holy Spirit, would you come now and would you show us, Lord God? Lord, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, God. I just pray we'd break off condemnation today, God. And would you open up our eyes, like we sang about today, to see that you are better than anything else our old self and the culture is calling out to us. Lord God, you are better than these things. And so, Holy Spirit, would you sweep across this room and would you invite us out of the grave, dancing with our old self in the ways of this culture and into our new self, God. You are inviting fresh forgiveness, a, 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 your, your, a fresh robe that's pure as white, God. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that people would repent, they confess their sins to you and receive the assurance that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, forgive us of our worldliness, forgive us and cleanse us for where we dance with the devil this week. And you welcome us to come and feast with you again. You welcome us to come close. You just want our hearts, God. And it grieves you because you love us so much to see us drifting away from you into dangerous territory. There is no life in Ephesus. There is only life in Jesus. So search us, O Holy Spirit, and call us home again. Call prodigals home again, Lord Jesus, I pray. And ask in Jesus' name.